Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by Jim Impoco, Editor-in-Chief of Newsweek. Starting out as a reporter at the AP, Jim went on to hold editorial roles at Fortune magazine and Sunday Business Editor at the New York Times. Joining Reuters in 2009, he was their inaugural enterprise editor, where he conceived and created their glossy quarterly magazine and eventually became executive editor of Thomson Reuters Digital. He joined Newsweek in 2013 as editor-in-chief and has since been praised for helping return the magazine to profitability and relaunch its print publication. Jim, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's great to be here. That sounds a bit of a roller coaster adventure so far. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. I, I consider myself very lucky. I mean, it's it's, it's been... A real adventure, as you say. Tell us about these two covers, then. It was, uh, it's either very brave or very <laughs> self-destructive, a few people have said, haven't they? Oh, you mean the uh, the, two, the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump covers? Yes, this is... My apologies, yeah. This will come uh, out a couple of weeks after the uh, shock election result, actually, so I should have <laughs> contextualised that, shouldn't I? Well, the, the, this is a, this, it's a bit of a shaggy dog story, but it's, it's, it's an interesting one to We've me, We've got time. Tell us. Good, good. And, and, and totally completely in keeping with the spirit of this 2016 elect- presidential race which uh was as as we know like Fellini-esque uh, a combination of Fellini and Wes Craven the horror master mm-hmm. you know it's just it, it was beyond anything Hollywood could possibly have scripted in its most demented <laughs> manner. So, so Donald Trump as, as worse than Freddy Krueger. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and, you know, and, and, and it was so bitter and toxic and deeply, deeply divisive, you know, with, with Trump, you know, hamming to the cameras and, and insulting people so needlessly and, and gratuitously and his crowds just, just egging him on and, and, and loving it. Uh, you know, this is basically what we've been swimming in <laughs> for the past year and a half. And, and, and it's, it's just extraordinary. I mean, nobody's ever seen anything like this. You know, all the while, you know, every time there's a plot twist, the uh, director of the FBI, you know, right in the middle of, you know, two weeks before the election produces this very cryptic letter that, that just turns the election on its head 10 days before election day it's incredible and and then you know 5 days later essentially releases another statement saying never mind <laughs> by, by which time Just many people kidding. have voted postally. Of course, and you had tens of millions of early votes that had happened before that. And emails was Hillary Clinton's email saga, which we could talk about. It's really, I think, a, a, a good window into the 2016 campaign because because it's it's at once a very complicated but ridiculously banal bureaucratic issue that, you know, when you contextualize it, when you look at it in its historical context, that is, you know, you you realize is is almost as unremarkable as a traffic infraction, a possible traffic infraction. 
and and yet it became <laughs> it, it became Nixonian somehow that you know it became something akin to Watergate so you know there it's it's been that kind of election so in the middle of this to get back to your to your question about about the two covers let me It's a great diversion though don't worry I enjoyed it Okay <laughs> you know I was sitting in my office and I I I use Twitter like a a news feed it's it's sort of like I use something called TweetDeck and I have all these different feeds that I stare at and it's it it's sort of like looking at the uh zeros and ones in the movie Matrix you know yes. it just moves very fast it's a it's a little jerky uh Twitter actually bought TweetDeck from from another party and hasn't really invested any money in it so it's it's very jerky but it's incredibly effective as as a as a very personalized customized newswire it's a news feed so i i'm seeing in real time everything the wall street journal tweets everything new york times tweets and you know all the people i i follow who i look to for their news judgment and also i have one channel that that's just about people tweeting about newsweek so I'm sitting at my desk and I saw for the first time the Hillary Wins cover, you know, Pre- Madam President, a picture of it online. Now, keep in mind that we are in the middle of a campaign that's bizarre for numerous reasons and not the least of which is the fact that Vladimir Putin is having himself a whale of a time yeah. <laughs> meddling <laughs> because – he can, and he seems to be enjoying it, and, and, and they're not even bothering to cover up their their fingerprints. So, you know, anything you see online, you just assume, is it doctored? Is it is it is this, is this misinformation? Did this come from Sputnik or, or Russia Today? Or, you know, I don't – you don't really know what you're seeing. So I saw this cover, and – and I couldn't imagine why I was seeing it. And it was from a bookstore. Some some young woman apparently opened a box that was under embargo that had these Madam President Newsweek covers that our contractor produces for us. We outsource this to a company that's in the commemorative magazine business. So you have no knowledge of this at this moment? Well, I had vague knowledge that it would be coming and I I, I didn't really know when and, you know, there were far bigger fish to fry. You know, and there's nothing and, wrong with preparing different versions of, course, of the same well, the next day. All the time. This is so routine. This is this is really a non-event in the world of publishing. It is the magazine equivalent of the World Series t-shirt vendors who produce Chicago Cubs and Cleveland Indians t-shirts or you know for your audience perhaps it's 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 Arsenal and and Chelsea t-shirts you know and and whoever wins you sell the t-shirts the other batch you 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 pulp you... I, I support York City actually but you've probably not heard of them uh, no I have I have an 11 year old who decided to torture me by becoming obsessed with soccer and and <laughs> so I I am now uh, I now spend more time reading and writing and and watching and playing soccer than I ever imagined when I was growing up in New York City soccer was the thing my immigrant 
relatives did, so it was uncool, of course. I played, you know, American sports like baseball and football. And well, if you call it soccer in, in England, you'd be shot immediately. Oh, we call it true. football, football of, course. of course. Of course, yes. <laughs> but you have a different form of football <laughs> yes. here. Totally separate game, randomly. <laughs> so to get back to the story, I'm... You know, I, I'm vaguely aware that this is, is going to be produced. I have no idea of what the timing is. And then I see this tweet. <laughs> and, and I stare at it and I start pulling back and leaning back in my chair with this look that I could only imagine was a little bit like David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth, who's staring in front of all these screens and has a look that is otherworldly. My managing editor walked in just then, and I, I think he thought I was having a, a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> Some kind of episode. He thought there was – and he, he said, are you okay? And I waited probably a little bit too long before answering, I don't know. <laughs> and and I pointed to the screenshot of the magazine and I said, this is not going to be good. Now, again, it's a routine, quotidian thing in, mm. in the publishing world, yet in this toxic brew of electoral politics in America, suddenly it became a thing. It, it went viral. Thing, yeah. It really did. And, and you know, I, I, my tweet feed was nothing but, but people going nuts, mostly on the Trump side, almost entirely on the Trump side, saying this is evidence that the election is rigged. This is this is Exhibit A. Look, yeah, exactly. if you were wondering about it's not very strong the extent, exhibit a, is it? yes. Well, they were saying you know this demonstrates more than anything else that the media is colluding with Hillary Clinton rather than just a straight exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 you know I'm looking at this and I mostly ignored it, and then after a while I tweeted out the other cover that was produced, which was the Donald Trump cover. So we had a President Trump yeah. and a Madam President cover that this, again, this 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 contractor did for us. So I really didn't even look at it. I mean, I hardly paid any attention to it, but suddenly it was consuming my life, <laughs> you know, in this. Incredible. Yes. So anyhow, it, it remained viral. So tens of Maybe hundreds of thousands of people are tweeting this out saying, it's rigged, it's rigged, look, 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 this shows you how corrupt the system is. And and then, you know, finally, another group started pushing back saying, no, they, this is actually how the publishing industry works. You know, commemorative issues are produced long before the, the event so that they could be in bookstores and newsstands, you know, in a timely manner. Sometimes, unfortunately, we do this when we hear people are dying and and we think these are important people who deserve a commemorative issue. A former president say we will start producing it, not we, the companies we, we pay to do this, start producing these issues before the person is actually cold and in the grave. So, you know, it's 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 quite commonplace and and you know, it could be worse as you can see with the obituaries. You could imagine how how awkward that would be. So anyhow, we sort of survived this a little bit and and you know, it's it's still a big deal, but then Trump wins and I think that's the end of it. Mm. Okay, Trump won. 
So obviously, if that's your proof that the election was rigged, we didn't do a very good job rigging it now, did we? (laughs) But now it's even bigger. However, it's a big story now for a very different reason. It's no longer proof that the election is rigged. It's proof that, you know, we are just the Keystone Cops, clueless and, you know, frankly, really really stupid. Well, actually preferred the it's rigged (laughs) argument to the boy, are they dumb argument, (laughs) which is what's happening now. Did the publicity help? You know, I... Because Newsweek is such an iconic brand anyway, isn't it? You know, when I was... You mentioned that the Sky News appearance where I actually showed the cover. I mean, it was was a vague attempt to take a lemon and, and make lemonade. You know, and I did find myself thinking, you know, at the end of the day, here I am holding, waving a legacy print product on television. And, you know, I suppose that's, uh, that's, an advertisement of sorts and, you know, it's probably... Some would argue that television is a legacy media product these days. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, and, you know, and it was Donald Trump himself who I believe made the point that there's no such thing as bad publicity. Hmm. I may may be misattributing it, but I I, I believe that Trump said that. I, however, do think there's such thing as bad publicity, and he was guilty of it, much of this campaign. But look, he won, so, you know. Tell us about coming back to Newsweek, because, um, you know, it's it's had some ups and downs over the last few years, to be fair, hasn't it? Number of different owners, uh, stopping print, going back into print. Um, Mm. You know, when I I read that you were becoming editor-in-chief, I thought, well, you know, th- that's an extremely brave move. Best of luck to you. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 you couldn't ask for a more exciting opportunity because it was considered in, 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 in media circles to be dead and buried. You know, we, we inherited this caucus, <laughs> you know, and making it, you know, less significant, making, making it worse than what it was would have been a true act of genius, you know, it, you only had one way to go. It's either going to get better or it's going to go out of business really quickly. But what made it such an extraordinary opportunity and so exciting and, you know, just the kind of challenge that I, I personally love to undertake is that, you know, you had a chance to hit the reset button on a, a an international brand that still resonated there was this Daily Beast Newsweek combination. And one of the things that happened when we split up is uh, d- d- I don't know if your your listeners are aware of the Daily Beast. And yes, they are. I, and yeah. I, I, I myself have been a long time reader of Newsweek. Right, right. So I've gone through all of this with oh, you. Oh, OK, great. <laughs> well, well, you know, the Daily Beast was, was uh, the lovely Tina Brown's creation. And, uh, you know, she decided she would save her legacy and they sold Newsweek and, you know, basically sold us for scrap parts, Mm. (laughs) you know. I mean, when I I got it, there really wasn't much there. (laughs) And, you know, we had a month to sort of build a team and put out a magazine. It was really an extraordinary experience. The thing was that everybody who remained at the Daily Beast, not everybody, but quite a few people, especially correspondents in in Russia and elsewhere, pleaded with me to be able to use the Newsweek name because the Daily Beast didn't really mean much to anyone in Moscow, mm. yet Newsweek did. And, you know, that was the first glimmer to me that, hey, you know, I know brands are getting a bad 
name in the digital news era. Like people, there is a, people question, you know, what's a brand? Do brands even matter on the internet? And and you know, the resounding answer was 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 yes. When I realized that people just to function as as journalists needed the Newsweek name to get access and to get the kind of be able to do the kind of reporting they hope to do. So you know, to me, that was quite revealing. So we got the uh, uh, we got Newsweek, and you know, the nice thing is that we we didn't have to. You, this is not a custodian's role. <laughs> you know, you know, you're not you're not trying to preserve what was there because what was there was clearly in a little bit of trouble. So you had to hit the reset button. You had it's to reinvent reboot, it. It yep. was a reboot. And, you know, it was a reboot that needed to happen, that basically most brands would benefit from this kind of reboot. But, but you know, it's, it's, it's what's known as the innovator's dilemma. You're caught up in a business model that is is relatively successful or at least you know producing enough bottom and top line to have no incentive to rethink everything but th- that wasn't the case with newsweek so we didn't have the legacy baggage that your time magazine or 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 fortune magazine or even Business Week had, you know, we didn't have a rate base that had to be met because it had all been taken down. Tina took it out of print. We were a digital brand, and all we had was was the name Newsweek. Hell of a name, though. Yeah, it's a good name. So I thought that's exactly why I took it from scratch with that name. Yeah, and start with something else. And and I've been around the block. I've worked at Newsweeklies. I I know how to do a magazine. We're going to go through your career later. (laughs) You know. So I, I said, yeah, we could do this. And, and you know, the nice thing again is that, and, you know, this is, I say nice, I mean, it was a strategic, tactile advantage to be able to ignore some of the shibboleths about magazine making. Mm. You know, just even how you physically make a magazine you know, there 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 are decades and decades of 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 sort of rules that you that most people adhere to, that we didn't have to pay any attention to. You know, there's a traditional front of the book, there's a traditional uh, back of the book, and we didn't do that. We didn't have to do that because you know, when you're making a print product from scratch, a magazine in the year it was 2014 when we brought it back to print. Magazines had a different utility 20 years ago than they have today. Mm. So 20 years ago, people got a magazine, and the most important section in the magazine were the, was the front of the book, the front of the magazine, where there were short, grazing, snappy articles, you know, maybe 100 words, 200 words, lots of them, and, and people called it, you know, grazing, where you would just, just, you know, just read little snippets of news. Well, this little thing called the internet came along that Never is nothing but grazing and snapping. You know? Never heard of it. Exactly. So when you're living in a world of like, you know, where the, the one of the most potent media forms is is a, a platform that limits you to 140 characters <laughs> in a tweet. I don't know if you're going to a print magazine 
to do your grazing. And if you are, I don't know if I want you as a subscriber. <laughs> I'm at my most creative in the world when I've drafted a tweet that's like 142 characters and I'm just I'm agonising oh. over, well, I could change that and word to an ampersand and I could... Could, yes. I, could I get rid of that comment? Does it... De- comma, does it destroy the flow? It's you know, made us all editors. <laughs> it's very interesting because it's sort of, you know, one of the things editors have to do is, is, is especially uh, legacy editors, is you have to make things fit in, in, in you know you have a difficult. certain size so you have to like trim sometimes a sentence by you know x amount in order to to bring it up a line and make the whole piece fit so you can print it so you know the exercise you're doing on twitter is sort of like you have a thought and you have to somehow edit and streamline that thought to 140 characters without you know making it so cryptic and 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 unreadable that no one knows what you're tweeting, right? So on the first day as you, as you came in as, as the editor, you're walking into reception, it's the, the building, it's the start of a new day. What was front of your mind? What was top of your to-do list? Did you did you already have a kind of set of tasks or was it more of a kind of an emotional drive where you thought, right, we're going to bring this magazine back and we're going to do X, Y and Z? You know, what, what, what was front of your mind? Well, as staffing up, I was preoccupied with picking the kind of staff that could make a weekly cadence work and work in the digital age. So I needed people, since we were starting from from nothing practically, you know, we had two or three people, I needed writers who had range. So one of the my first hires was the amazingly talented Bill Powell, who is uh, a former... I met him when he was the Newsweek bureau chief in Tokyo. The, the, the sort of young 20-something bureau chief for Newsweek in Tokyo. And I was the same age. And I was the bureau chief for U.S. News in Tokyo. And we were these sort of young bucks and, uh, and competed against each other. But we were very close friends. We, we played squash against each other in tennis. Uh, and and f- basketball and we we were sports friends and we were, and social friends as well. He he became one of my best friends, even though we were you know ruthless competitors in a lot of ways. I do like the phrase frenemies. I'm not just yeah, saying yeah. enemies, but he's really good. No, of, he wasn't really a friend. A frenemy is someone a that competitor, yeah, a friendly yeah. rival. Yes, yes, yes. But then he no longer became a rival. And, you know, as I moved on, he moved on to other roles. But the thing about Bill is, is you know, he was the correspondent. He was the kind of correspondent who could parachute into any situation. So I was with him at Fortune magazine when the Gulf War, after 9-11 and then the Gulf War, he was the one you send to Iraq. And he was, you know, he used to be the Berlin bureau chief for Newsweek. He was the China, he's our China correspondent now. But, you know, the point is he could write about anything. We could send him anywhere. So he's almost like, okay, hire Bill Powell. Now we got foreign coverage covered for now in case something, if there's an Arab Spring tomorrow, he's on it. So then I needed to find people like that who could range and and, and do so you know, adeptly and adroitly enough to to move the dial, to have impact. And, you know, so it was really about staffing up. 
you know, you're you're you know, when you're starting from scratch, you know, you're weaponizing Newsweek. <laughs> what did the IB <laughs> Times, you know, what kind of brief did they give you? I should say that's the new owners, right? The new owners. I mean, it was pretty amazing. They 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 are you know thirty something. When I met them, I think they had just turned thirty, and they were these digital entrepreneurs. To them, they they had no intention of bringing Newsweek back into print. But after six months, it was they who who insisted that we go back into print. And I, I actually was afraid that it was a kind of a litmus test, you know, like if I said yes, they would fire me. So, so you know, like, yeah, that's what we thought. You just want, always wanted to go back to print. You don't care about digital yeah, we media. Got you to reveal your hidden yes, ambition. Yes, oh no. You're off. Yes, exactly. It's like you know, it's 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 sort of like in Japan. I used to be a, a Japan correspondent, and and I have a lot of background in in Japanese history. And one of the things they did during the uh, the the uh, period of of Japan being closed off to the world because they were afraid of proselytizers is uh they they would they had these religious icons mostly uh crucifixes and things like that and they would place them on the ground and if they suspected you had been uh converted to Christianity they would ask you to step on the icon so your choice was you stepped on the icon or you had your head lopped off by a samurai <laughs> so the choice is it Huh? It's not much, not of, much a of a choice. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, anyhow, I said, okay, yeah, sure, let's do. Uh, my head didn't get lopped off when I agreed to take it back to print, and you know, that's when the fun began because, in a commercial way, the print product is is you know your most prestigious platform. You know, it's 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 really the the showcase Newsweek platform is is print, but. Most people are reading us online. We have over 15 million unique visitors a month coming to Newsweek online. Incredible numbers. Yeah, those are big numbers. And while we do okay on the newsstand, you know, we're we're like a top 50. We're you know, last I checked, we were number 36, and you know, of all. American magazines. There are so 5,000 It's a paper-based flyer for the website. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's <laughs> what it is. It's marketing. Yeah. It's marketing. Amazing. But, you know, the funny thing is it also gives you so much more gravitas. When we went back to print, it meant that suddenly all of the people who – in TV, for example – they love getting a hard copy, and when they get a hard copy, you're for real. You know, mm. like we started having so much more impact because of that physical print magazine. Even well, it, it though it shows a certain stature and a certain legitimacy because there's hundreds and hundreds of websites, right, and also exactly. it's very visual, isn't it? And yeah, can oh yeah, physically hold up, oh yeah, hold yeah. aloft a copy of well, music the in the same way that you did with the Trump yes, cover. The brilliant decision that the the owners made, and I really have to hand it to them, was. You know, the, I, I wish I could take credit for the for the idea, but they said, "Let's make this a boutique premium product." So we're going to use better paper quality. We're going to use, you know, make it as high end as as budget allows. And I put budget allows in in quotation marks yeah. because you know there are always limitations of budget. I mean, we we never had uh, 
Condé Nast-like dollars to mm. throw at photo shoots or anything like that. There's a lot of sleight of hand that goes on to uh, to make the magazine, you know, look great. But you know that has been a huge selling point. Is that if you if you hold Newsweek in your hand and hold you know brands X and Y, as we say. You know, Newsweek fails heftier. It fails its its paper. It's glossier. It's, you know, I think it's it's a more elegant product. I mean, my my rivals have a lot of of advantages that and 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 you know, I have nothing but the most profound respect. And what's the offer then to the reader? Is it is it kind of slow journalism, a digest? What's the take? You know, I mean, g- given that you know, I'm on Twitter and hundreds of websites, yeah, why right, would right, I buy right, Newsweek? Right, right. I, I should say I do buy Newsweek. So, uh, well, bless you for that. Thank you. But let I me mean, let me kind of put you on the spot. What is it? Why should I buy Newsweek? In theory, if I didn't buy it, you know, I don't. I think there's never been more a better reason to buy Newsweek. Frankly, I mean, let let me let me. Slow down for a second and, and, and answer that question because it's something I've thought about for a very long time now since, you know, we, we again, we're taking this, this storied legacy product and restoring it to health. We're trying to revivify it. A lot of people felt that we, we, we were raising the dead. <laughs> I used to joke that we were it was like being in uh, outtakes of uh, The Walking Dead, the popular AMC series now. Uh, but if you look, Newsweek has been around since 1933. And I went back and I looked at the 1933, you know, the, the, the issues from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And one of the things you'll see is journalism evolves. So anyone who, who who thinks that Newsweek isn't the same as it used to be, you know, my answer is damn straight it isn't. Thank God it isn't. You know, I mean, when I was cutting my teeth in journalism at a Newsweekly, the main thing you did was was connect the dots in ways that newspapers seemed almost structurally incapable of doing. You know, the newspaper pyramid, you know, the uh, inverse pyramid that a lot of people talk about, where you put the most important news first, and then the pyramid, the upside-down pyramid sort of goes like this. You know, it's sort of like when you get to the point that you're you're mostly at the bottom. At the singularity. B matter. Mm. But all the important news, this is why, uh, you know, a typical newspaper story, especially, you know, a decade ago, I mean, it's starting to change, but, you know, they would have, and I, I, I worked at the New York Times, and we could talk about that, but this is, you know, I, I, I had to edit newspaper writers, and it was a bit of a challenge for me because there's no sentence that couldn't use another clause. Mm. I mean, they, they, they have these Miltonic constructions. <laughs> I'm laughing that at go, recognition. They just go on and on and on and on and on. It's, almost, it's an art form to write them, but, you know, it's, 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 it's not what we would consider, you know, the most elegant or, or, or lucid kind of writing. And, you know, what it reflects is, you know, the role of the newspaper in, in American society. I mean, you know, when I first got to the New York Times, I was told by our standards editors that the thing about a newspaper is you have to be able to read it with holding the train strap in your left hand and the newspaper in your right so they're designed to be read standing up in a subway car, you know, and wow. that says a lot. Mm. 
you know, if you think about it, I mean, you're trying to, you're assuming that people are not going to get to the end. So you're trying to front load as much news as possible in the top, which sadly doesn't always lend itself to the most elegant writing. You know, if you, if you look at the New Yorker, which is, you know, the famous sort of anti-newspaper, you know, a lot of times you won't get to the what we call the kicker, the nut graph, you know, which is the, 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 the sort of the graph that sort of frames the whole issue until the very end. <laughs> you know, you'll go through 4,570 words and then you'll get to the nut graph. It's quite an academic way of writing, isn't it, where you kind of make the case and yes, build yes, your yes, argument yes. and then you conclude. Right, you know, right, interesting right, right. I, I think, like you said, the, the best way is to, is to state your conclusion at the beginning and then say why, why exactly. that is. Because it's the yeah. attention grabber, isn't it? It's the right. kicker. Right. So with newspapers, you know, again, because, uh, because of the, uh, the news pyramid, the inverted pyramid, uh, all news weeklies had to do was basically take... It's, it, it was as if they were taking a week's worth of newspaper reports and just stitching it together in a way that was easy to read and contextualized. So, you know, that was the job of a, of a news magazine. You, you're, you're essentially a digest, but it, 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 was, it was frankly better written than what was in newspapers and – you know, higher end writing and journalism, you know, that was your job. Today, if you think about it, there's absolutely no need for a digest, a weekly digest, let alone. I mean, it's it's an absurd thought, right? Isn't there more need than ever, I would say, you know, given that well, you can kind of, you're almost in the rapids of news. It's, it's all shallow. True. It's we true. And, so and, and we do address that. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely, you know, there's this lovely New Yorker cartoon that that I've never forgotten. And it has this picture of a dog standing in front of a computer with a caption that says, if there's so much information, how come I don't know anything? Yeah. (laughs) Like the price of everything and the value of nothing. Exactly. So, yes, I mean, right now, it's it's like uh, newspapers are now much better at contextualizing. If you read a newspaper front page story... Today, it reads a lot like a 1980s news weekly piece, you know, something you might see in Time magazine, U.S. News, The World Report, The Economist, or, you know, newspapers have evolved. So what we've done, or at least at Newsweek, is, you know, you're pushing the evolution to, you know, one to the next rung. And, 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 you know, what we're trying to provide are deeper dives. So we do longer pieces. We focus on narrative journalism, long-form journalism, investigative journalism, journalism that takes, you know, frankly, Resources. a lot of – Yeah. I mean, I, you, should, you should read a Newsweek cover story and feel that you've read something fairly authoritative – What's the ideal Newsweek cover story? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, it, it, yeah, I'm glad you're answering that. I wouldn't be able to. It, it, it's hard to say. It depends on what the, what, what the news is. But, you know, the ideal Newsweek cover story uh, will, will help you understand the complexity of an issue and pitch the story forward so that you have a glimmering of, of, of where the story is going next. 
And, you know, it, it really gives you the wherewithal to understand developing news. So if you read something on Let's let's go back. I said Arab Spring before. If, if you're if you're reading something about uh, the, you know the Egyptian chapter of Arab Spring, and and we execute the way we should, you know the next chapter, Libyan chapter, is going to be easier for you to understand because we've 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 given it as much historical context as 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 we could. Does that make any sense? No, it absolutely does. And it, it made me think, I mean, I do agree with you. It's all contextualization, I suppose. It's that, that deeper dive, that longer read. Yes. It's something that you'd, you want to read when you're waiting for a plane rather than just right. kind of on a, on a commute where you've got a quick 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have quite a number of kind of consumer commuter newspapers in London where, where I work. And you can t- even the way they're presented and written, it's designed for you to give right. the whole paper seven minutes. Right, right, Whereas, right. You, you know, you're going to buy news where you don't, you don't want to kind of skim it, right. do you? That's, it's the opposite. Of skimming. Exactly. I mean, BuzzFeed has, you know, hundreds and hundreds of employees and they're producing a phenomenal amount of content. We need to be deeper. <laughs> Absolutely. Where, where, will you be, where will Newsweek be, say, five years from now? What's your kind of medium term plan? I, I think we're really getting going now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think that this year, I, I, this is my fourth year and, and this is by far and away, I think, you know, our best year where we're, you know, uh, we were finding our way and our rhythm early on. And to some extent, I was steering it more toward like the monthly magazine that comes out every week, but sort of shying away a little bit from from the 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 biggest breaking news stories. I, I was I was avoiding putting them on the cover because you have at, in a magazine you have a lead time. It takes you, you know, you you close the magazine, you you have to produce it, and producing a magazine is 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 very you know it's it's it has a lot more moving parts than than you could imagine. Certainly more moving parts than BuzzFeed. It's not a it's not a question of going into a CMS. And uh, you know, picking a photo, p- picking, clicking publish, picking, and then clicking publish. You know, <laughs> you know, there are layers of, 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 uh, of, 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 of things that that have to happen for a magazine to go out on the production side, and you have a whole production staff, and it's it's uh, you know, it's charming, but it, you know, it, it does feel a little antiquated, to, you know, to be frank. Mm. So, at first, what what we were doing was, I would you know, the covers tended to be big. Picture big tent covers, but you know not right off the headlines. And then the news we were covering, you know, we would flick at the news in what's known as the roof line above the logo, so to to give it a, a news feel on the newsstand. Now, what I'd say lately is since you know we we've been doing this now for we're in our fourth year and you know we're we're, we're bigger and and better at what we we do and you know more staff and and more experience and right now we're able even with the long lead time to sort of go right into the heart of a breaking new, developing news story so you know i think this campaign i think uh has been our finest period, if uh, you know, at all, to, uh, I say that with as much humility as you could possibly imagine, because Lord knows you make a lot of mistakes. 
in the course of any campaign. Does does the the kind of strength of the brand open doors? I mean, it, you know, does oh, it give you totally. the access that you need? Oh, completely, completely. People, I mean, and and I've noticed it again more more intensely during this this campaign. I mean, it's very exciting when when Hillary Clinton herself starts a tweet storm based on one of your stories. Mm. She tweeted, she had 20 tweets built around one story that we did, one Incredible. investigative story about Donald Trump. And, and I was I was flabbergasted. You know, of course, it makes you nervous too because it's like, when is Donald going to uh, do his tweet storm so people don't think we're entirely partisan here? Or, you know. You're not going to be one of the first people that he's going to jail, are you? I, I don't know. I did ask our investigative reporter, Kurt Eichenwald, who's who's just one of the – he is the best in the business. He's covered Donald Trump for four decades and, and has carried a steamer trunk of documents, you know, about Trump's business empire. So, you know, he's, he's one of the foremost experts on Donald Trump's businesses, which are, as you know, very, very opaque, you know, except for when it goes bankrupt, there isn't much of a a paper trail around his business. And uh, luckily for us, he's 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 gone bankrupt so many times that, you know, there is quite a, well, when he enters a, a the large... White House, I think he's got like 75 serious lawsuits against him already. already oh, yeah. Already yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's so, just unprecedented. The whole thing is unbelievable. Oh, completely, completely. I mean, we broke stories during this campaign showing that he had violated the trade embargo against Cuba. He clearly had done it. I mean, there was no we we had the documents. We showed how it happened. His company broke the embargo, and to make it even more Trumpian and more delicious, not only did he violate the embargo, tw- you know, one day later he started stumping where he talked about how important it was to preserve the embargo and that Cuba must change and Fidel is a mess. Yeah. So, you know, to us, this was like, oh, you have to be kidding. This is just... Do you despair, though, as a journalist, that, you know, despite the fact that you're exposing that hypocrisy and that wrongdoing, that half of the voters in this this country, I should say we're recording this in New York, uh, don't care? I mean, they can't care because they voted for him. You know, you do despair a little bit. But, you know, on the other hand, you have to take this for what it seems to be. And what it seems to be is is a huge, huge protest vote. I mean, that is, is you know, more akin to Brexit than any any campaign we've had. I mean, I think the most the most pertinent data point that I've seen, the most most astounding data point, I should say, is that uh, nearly one in five people who voted for Donald Trump in exit polls told the pollster that he or she didn't like Donald Trump. Incredible. So what does that say? So it's an anti-Hillary vote. Exactly. Well, it's not so much anti-Hillary either, I think. I think it was anti-Washington. I think the... I think Trump supporters see him as a weaponized protest vote. They see him as a nuclear warhead that they're going to aim at the nation's capital and 
blow it up and, and start all over again. I mean, they think that... Uh, but the problem with nuclear weapons are they're, they're very impactful. You know, there's, there's a, well, they cause far the more devastation thing. than you would yes, expect. Yes, there's a lot of collateral damage, and we've been phrase. seeing a lot of collateral damage during this campaign. So we, we've got a few minutes left. Let's talk about uh, your career before Newsweek, if we can. One of the things when I was researching you was you were criticised at one point at timing for, for not using your expense account as aggressively as others. I, I found that oh, hilarious. Because yeah. the, the, uh, the, the the kind of cliches that the editor's always lunching away and so on, and then uh, there, there's right, you right, under right, lunching. Right, right, it really happened. I don't, I don't know if my former supervisors uh, despise me now for having <laughs> said that, but 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 you know, I think I think they're okay with it because it was the reality. I was at Time Inc, mm-hmm. and uh, when I was at Time Inc, it was sort of the end of an era. It was the era was ending. Nobody was aware of it. So it wasn't the era where, like, they used to roll drink carts through the corridors. Uh, like something out of Mad Men. Friday night, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and it was. I mean, it was incredibly... I mean, compared to journalism today, it, it, it was almost like you know, being in Ver- Versailles, Palace, you know, it was it was extraordinary. So, so I had come from uh, from U.S. News and World Report, which is owned by Mort Zuckerman, and was the the third biggest news weekly. And then, I when I went to Time Inc., which was you know the the biggest by far and away, you know they they had much greater resources, and I had a much bigger expense account. And frankly, I thought I was uh, availing myself more than adequately <laughs> with my expense account but but I had my supervisor the editor in chief came up to me and said you know uh you're holding down the average I said what do you mean holding down he said well you see uh you're spending so little compared to the rest of the staff that it's making us all look bad so you're pulling down the average if you could please go out to a lot of lunches yeah. for the last month of the fiscal quarter that would ensure that our allocated expense entertainment budget uh, will not go down I, so I can suppose, you do that for us <laughs> I, I suppose the serious point behind the question is is what kind of editor are you because and by that what I mean is what's your editorial style because we've you know, we've had a few editors on the the podcast that see it as their job very much to be the ambassador to be the, the networker and to go out and have as lunch and build connections with as many right. people as possible and then you get other ones that are obsessed with you know what's on the front page that they're, they're literally going in and I, editing individual words I you would know, Say that I'm more the latter. If I, if I, an could, editor type editor. Yeah. If I, I mean, and it's not because you know, simply because I'm bad at the other thing. <laughs> I'm not especially good. I mean, I came up half of my career. I was a writer and a foreign correspondent. So then, the second half of my career, I became an editor. So. You know, I I'm not especially good at waving the flag and 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 coming on shows like this and sounding. Uh, You're doing pretty well, so far, uh, uh, Well, thank you very much. But it's 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 not something I I, you know, I don't live for it. I I I. I I actually hate going on TV. This is rather comfortable. This is podcast. better. We get the space to have yeah. a proper conversation as well. TV yeah. only gives you like I four mean, or five minutes. Last night, I, I you said you saw me on Sky TV, and you know. The producer, I I felt as if I was in an outtake from Bridget Jones, you know, the, the sequel, <laughs> yeah. where like the producer saying 50 seconds, 30, 
five seconds and I'm speeding up, mm. you know, as I'm trying to finish my answer. And um, and I, I think at one point I even had to run over the poor host. And, you know, being again, this is like here's this American, you know, after we've just elected Trump and I'm like, you know, this huge Harryox of, you know, of like energy, you know, and this poor, you know, very reserved uh, British newsreader is going like, oh, okay, okay. You know, well, just, I suppose it's the, the, the kind of conflicting style because you're a, a kind of weekly digest, right. a slow journalist, as it were, in the best right. sense of the phrase. And then the TV's the opposite where, you know, even when I do kind of national radio, you'll get six or seven minutes, but national TV, you're lucky to get 90, 100 seconds. I think that national TV has been a huge problem uh, during the Brexit period and, and this campaign. It suits, I mean, it it suits really, spectacle-type politicians, doesn't it? it? It does, and it lends itself to to sound bites and to very clipped, you know, not very nuanced answers. If you're looking for nuances, you're not going to get it from television. Vote Brexit to take back control. I mean, exactly. who wouldn't want to take exactly. back control? That sounds great. They, Where right, 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 right. You know? But what does it mean? <laughs> exactly. You know? like, and, and, you know, Donald, what does it mean? You're going to build a wall? Fine. Okay, great. But, like, what is the wall going to do? And then how are you going to uh, get around these these actual physical problems with the wall? I mean, you know, the amazing thing about this campaign, I, I wish I knew who to credit because I, I don't know who said it first or, you know, I, I read it on Twitter, but it's just the most wonderful way to frame what we've just experienced here. It said that that Trump supporters don't take him literally, but they take his words seriously. Journalists take his words literally, but they don't take him seriously. And that's the divide in a nutshell. I mean, that's the schism <laughs> that we've just seen play out uh, to a remarkable extent. So, Jim, I'm going to get all television on you now. I'm going to pretend to be that producer. Okay. We, we literally have two minutes left of this studio. So Ooh. in two minutes yes. or less, uh, what would your advice be to, the, to someone starting out in journalism that wants to be the next editor-in-chief of Newsweek? You know, you just you you have to have unquenchable curiosity the thing i love about journalism is you just parachute into the middle of history and you know you have to you have to figure it out i mean it's it's just the most remarkable and 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 delightful occupation in that regard you know so so like if you want to live on the edge of history and and you're you're fascinated by that you know this is this is the career for you Jim, your enthusiasm is, it, well, it's infectious for one, but it's also uh, very, very impressive indeed. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. A Big Things Media Production. 